Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 11 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, if you want to know which topics we discussed and when, then the show notes will be your best friend. They'll give you a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview of what you can expect. In Germany, we looked at some of the key takeaways from the most recent edition of Der Klassiker, which took place on match day 14 and saw Bayern Munich register a 3-2 win away at Borussia Dortmund. In Spain, we assessed in detail the 4-0 win for Real Betis over Real Sociedad. We looked at that performance and we looked at the wider significance of the result itself. Real Betis, of course, now sit in third place in the table. In Italy, we asked ourselves if there are any signs at all, any signs whatsoever of Jose Mourinho building a long-term project of sorts at Roma. While in France, we explained why my beloved Strasbourg have been so much fun to watch in league and this season. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Have a lovely Christmas when it comes. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Michael Jones and I had a lovely weekend in Manchester, taking in Manchester City's game against Wolves. We're still not quite sure as to what happened, what Raul Jimenez's thought process was prior to sending off, but it, it, uh, yeah, it provided plenty of, of content for discussion at halftime and after. We we went to a few pubs, we went out for dinner, and we had a we had a very merry time. Michael Jones, did you enjoy the weekend as much as I did? And more importantly, have you recovered from all those pints and fancy cocktails? <laughs> Yeah, I was quite ropey on the Monday, but no, it was great fun, wasn't it? I mean, it's crazy to think, I don't know, I'm guessing our listeners don't know, this is like the first time we've seen each other since we started recording as well, which is yeah. obviously with the pandemic and whatnot. But so, yeah, I think that just made it a bit extra special, didn't it? Yeah, it was a lovely, a lovely weekend. Michael, it was great to see you, great to catch up. I don't, we've, yeah, well, we've not seen each other in person since 2017, which is quite, quite crazy to think. Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? You're about to head off after we've recorded this episode to go and play football. Are you suitably warmed up for that one or are you are you still in the process of lumbering up? 
Um, I'm as cold as ice, Ali, um, such as the night here in Scotland. Um, but feeling a bit like a third wheel on this podcast after hearing about your romantic getaway together to Manchester. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> apart from that, I'm pretty, I'm pretty well, Ali. Thanks. Oh, yeah, it was it was a, a bromantic weekend, you might say. The bromance was in was in full swing. But a lovely weekend. We'll need to get the three of us all together uh, once, well... Well, touch wood. Once, once the Omicron variant slows, it's it's quite rapid pace. Once that happens, then we'll need to get the three of us all together. A, a quite the occasion that would be. Now, enough chat about the weekends past. Let's chat about European football. That's what we're here to do. That's what the listeners are really here to hear about. And I think it would be quite good actually to start with some chat on French football. Definitely. Maybe we can organise that uh, weekend to France where after a dismal start to the season, um, which saw them go 11 games without a win, Stade Brestois are now one of the form teams in Europe. Quite remarkably, Michel Dersakarian's free-scoring side have won six of their last seven in Ligue 1, lifting themselves out of the relegation zone and up to 12th place in the process. Indeed, going into the most recent round of fixtures, only Atalanta could better Brest's run of eight domestic games without defeat across the top five leagues in Europe. Admittedly, Brest's unbeaten run was ended quite emphatically by Montpellier last weekend, but the outlook is still now decidedly rosier at the Stade Francis Leblay than it was two months ago. So, what have been the main factors behind this astonishing upturn in form for the team from the northwest of France? I think before I answer that question, Barlow, I do have to commend you for that quite wonderful transition into the question. I think Michael Jones and I were, <laughs> were similarly amazed by your yeah your ability there. Uh, but to answer your question, Barlow, I think there are three. <laughs> Three main factors which explain this remarkable revival, and I'll expand on each of those factors in turn, but just to sort of signpost my answer, if you like, those three factors are an almost perfect run of fixtures, more solid defensively, and the inconsistent brilliance of Roman Favre. We'll come on to Favre in, in due course, but let's look firstly at their fixtures over that incredible winning run. Now, you'll note that I didn't say a favourable run of fixtures and that's because on paper at least they face some yeah some really quite tough opponents and I say that the run was perfect because of the order of the games which really allowed Brest to to build momentum and ultimately to gain confidence going into the first of the six games which they won they had picked up a fairly respectable draw at Lille so in a sense, you could say yeah, that that in itself gave the team some confidence. And also, they'd, they'd scored in every league game, and there was always this feeling that if they could sort out the defence, more positive results would soon follow. Cue a clean sheet against a fairly inconsistent Monaco and a confidence-boosting 2-0 win to really kick-start their season, if you like, and ultimately to kick-start this brilliant run of six wins in a row that result really gave them a springboard from which to go on and put a really positive run 
together. Now, three of the next four games were against other sides at the wrong end of the table. They face Lyon, Bordeaux and Saint-Étienne. And we've obviously looked in depth at the issues at Bordeaux and the issues at Saint-Étienne. And so in that sense, yeah, those those fixtures were quite favourable and the order in which they came was, was perfect. And you also had in that run a home tie against an ever so slightly faltering Lons side. Um, and that game against Lons always felt like it could be special. There was just something when you were watching it. It was a midday kickoff on a Sunday afternoon and there was just something about the game which made you think, hmm, maybe Brest could, could, yeah, they could get a good result here. And by the time they travelled to take on Marseille earlier this month, 4th of December, they were on the longest winning run in their top flight history. So the momentum was well and truly with them. And in front of 54,000 fans, they made it six wins on the bounce. So to an extent, it does feel like they played the perfect teams at the perfect time and in the perfect order. All of those ingredients, if you want to call them that, combined to, yeah, to give Brest this fantastic six-game winning streak. That said, you know, you can talk about the fixtures and that perfect run, but the team also deserve credit for taking full advantage of that perfect run with some much-improved performances, which brings me nicely to our second factor, the team being more solid defensively. Now, before they went on this winning run, Brest had conceded 20 goals in 11 games, and they hadn't kept a single clean sheet. Over that six-game winning run that then followed, they conceded just three goals over those six games, and they kept three clean sheets. Now, we do have to say that their expected goals against figures suggest that they should perhaps have conceded on more than just those three occasions over the six games, but there was still a marked improvement compared to their previous underlying numbers um, and, and Marco Bezo as well, the Dutch goalkeeper, 30-year-old Dutch goalkeeper, also registered far better goalkeeping numbers over the six games, which again suggests an upturn in his form. So, yeah, they were conceding chances which weren't of the same quality and then their goalkeeper was, yeah, he was he was performing better. He was maybe getting slightly lucky as well um, or, or maybe, yeah, a combination of the two. And when you consider that Brest, even going into that winning run, like they scored in every game. It was just a question of could they tighten up the defence? And, and the defence still wasn't perfect during that run, but it was better. And yeah, I think that's played a key role in allowing them to win those six games. Now, the third factor and the final factor which I want to discuss is the 23-year-old midfielder, Roman Favre, who has scored seven goals and provided five assists in league and this season. He can play on the left, he can play on the right, he can play through the middle, and he's he's really quite versatile in that sense, but I do think his best position is on the right side of a midfield, maybe as a right midfielder or as a right-sided central midfielder. That allows him to come in on his favoured left foot and, and really create... Um, now, there is a lot of commentary on Favreau, so I'll try and keep my comments on him as brief as possible in the interests of time. But just about everybody agrees that Favre, that Roman Favre is wonderfully talented with so much potential. But there is 
a general consensus, I think it's fair to say, that if there's one thing holding him back, it's the fact that he is quite an inconsistent player. Finding consistency, I think, and most people would agree, will really enable Roma and Favre to really step it up to the next level. Now, I do think it's worth noting the fact that his non-penalty expected goals and his expected assists per 90 numbers, are they're nothing too spectacular, but Josh Hobbs, writing on the Scouted Football Patreon site, uh, really summed it up quite nicely when he said that Favre is quite often the player who will play the pass before the pass, if you like, just because of the positions he takes up and his role generally within the team. Now, I speak about his role within the team and his value to his team really comes from his ability to progress blessed up the park. He's in the 82nd percentile for passes into the final third, 82nd percentile for progressive passes per 90, 97th percentile for carries into the final third. And so you see from those underlying numbers that he's so important in terms of getting the ball up the park. And that's all the more important when we consider that Brest averaged just 41.1% of possession in Ligan and only not average less. So they need someone who can get on the ball, who can get them up the park effectively, who can get them up the, up the park regularly. That's what Favre does. And so when you take that into account, he's also, I should add, second in Ligan this season for carries into the final third. He was top in league and for carries into the final third last season. And so he is so key to a lot of the team's joy in getting the ball into the final third to then create chances. So when Favre plays well, when Favre is in one of his purple patches, if you like, it's not a surprise to see Brest picking up more positive results. He will absolutely have a key role to play for the rest of the season. You do feel like he'll only be at Brest for a little bit longer. There are a number of big clubs circling around him and you do get the impression that he feels ready to make the next step up, that he wants to make that step up. If he can find the consistency, I think we'll be seeing a lot of him at almost the top level. He's not a perfect player, but he's a very exciting player. Speaking of unbeaten runs and those coming to a rather abrupt end, Strasbourg welcomed Marseille to the Stade de la Menau on Sunday evening, hoping to extend their streak of six league and games without tasting defeat. Despite making a promising start to the game, Le Racing would ultimately lose 2-0 to the nine times champions of France. All things considered, however, that defeat shouldn't really be too disheartening for Julien Stefan's entertaining side. With the winter break just around the corner, the club found themselves just two points behind the European spots. So just how fun have Strasbourg been to watch this season? Michael, they've been absolutely marvellous to watch. Scoring goals for fun and playing some really lovely football. Just to address, firstly, that defeat against Marseille last Sunday before looking at the team more generally, the 2-0 scoring really flies in the face of the underlying numbers. And I say that because Strasbourg registered 1.9 expected goals, while their South Coast visitors registered just 0.6 expected goals. On another day, Ludovic Ajort would have buried his two big chances Bomba Dieng wouldn't have executed his overhead kick to absolute perfection. Do go check that goal out just as an aside. 
and, and, and Strasbourg may well have made it seven games unbeaten, but sometimes sometimes football just doesn't go your way. That said, it, it did really feel quite inevitable that Strasbourg would lose this one. Uh, they haven't beaten Marseille in the league since April 2005. Now, I was saying on the chat earlier in the week, guys, that on that day, uh, in April 2005, the last time Strasbourg beat Marseille, a certain Samir Nasri came off the bench as a 17-year-old substitute for Marseille, which, yeah, that, that, that really makes you, yeah, makes you feel old, I guess. Um, still, they'll take a lot of encouragement, Strasbourg, uh, from the fact that they were able to go so toe-to-toe with a club which spent really quite heavily over the summer. I think they spent about £45 million. Strasbourg, by contrast, spent about three million pounds there or thereabouts. So yeah, there's quite a quite a chasm between the two sides financially in that sense. Just to discuss the team more generally, there's quite rightly been a lot of focus on the rotating attacking trio of Ludovica Jork, Habib Diallo, and Kevin Gamero. Between them, they've scored 21 goals. Uh, two goals you should go and watch are Ajork's lobbed header against Bordeaux and his Composed finish at the end of a sublime team move away at Nice. Both goals were, yeah, they were absolutely gorgeous. The lobbed header in particular, I do not know why there hasn't been more fuss made of it. Wonderfully headed goal. And yeah, that team move against Nice started from the goalkeeper and they they pulled Nice left, right and centre. And then the through ball was weighted to perfection. And then the finish from Ajort was, it was nonchalant. It's probably the best word for it. As an aside, I think that Julien Stefan deserves credit for affording ample game time to his three main forwards when you consider that there's only really room for two of them in the starting lineup. Stefan favours a 3 5 2 formation, and yet you don't really get the impression that any one of those three forwards hasn't been given enough game time. So I think Stefan deserves a lot of credit for the way that he's, he's managed his three main attackers. Now, the team as a whole has scored 34 goals in Ligue 1. Only PSG have scored more. And Strasbourg have scored 23 of those 34 goals at home. No club in the league has managed more. Indeed, across Europe's top five leagues, only Bayern Munich, RB Leipzig, Inter and Dortmund have scored more goals than Strasbourg at home. So that just goes to show how free scoring they've been at the quite wonderful Stade de la Meno. I think, quite aside from all the goals and all the beautiful goals and beautiful football, quite aside from all of that, what makes this Strasbourg team so fun to watch is that they have interesting players throughout the team. Matt Sells is a solid goalkeeper, capable of producing some really top-drawer saves, seems to produce at least one every match. And he's always there or thereabouts when it comes to the man of the match votes at the end of the game with the Strasbourg fans. Frederick Gilbert is a constant threat at right wing back. He's provided three assists already this season and ranks fifth in the whole of Ligue 1 for crosses into the penalty area. Ibrahim Asisoko, I think he's one of these players who, yeah, there should be a lot more fuss made about. I think he's absolutely excellent. And in recent games, he has been brilliant. He was deservedly voted as the club's Jouet de Moi, or Player of the Month, playing in that holding midfield role and, yeah, speak quite regularly to 
my friend over in Strasbourg who sat next to me. We both had season tickets next to each other and he's been similarly praising of Ibrahima Sissoko. And of course, we have to mention Adrian Thomason, who I think deserves road to nowhere, cult hero status. We've noted his willingness to press before and he currently sits second in league and for pressure applied and that's not surprising at all. He's maybe one of the pressiest players in European football, certainly in Europe's top five leagues. He's regularly in the 99th percentile for a lot of the pressing statistics. Aside from his pressing, we've also seen him bag six goals and provide two assists for his team this season. So he's just an all-round joy to watch and he's so important to what Julian Stefan is doing with this Strasbourg team. On a closing note, I do think that a European spot will probably be just out of Strasbourg's reach come the end of the season. I know that at the moment they're really quite close to those European places, but maybe it's the, the pessimist in me, although I tend to be optimistic. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the realist in me who thinks that it probably will be out of their reach. The league's just so competitive and there are too many sides in and around those places with deeper squads and greater financial muscle. Now, for me, I think a more realistic aim would be to finish 10th or above and obtain at least 50 points. That would represent their best league campaign since their return to the top flight in 2017. Regardless, Strasbourg are so fun to watch. I'm extremely biased, of course, but if they're on BT Sports at any point, turn on the TV, give them a watch. They are marvellous. We're going to take a quick break now before returning to discuss Italian football with Michael Jones. We'll be right back. Two teams discussed earlier in the season were Atalanta and Inter Milan, who, without being disastrous, had failed to live up to the heights of previous campaigns following their stuttering starts. However, both teams appear to have burst into life and are now well and truly in the title race. What's been key to their superb turn in fortunes, Michael? Yeah, I feel like with Inter Milan, I mean, let's start with them because they are the current league leaders and we've talked a lot of about them this season and maybe not always too positively, but I think that's partly because of that fantastic team that was built last season in by Antonio Conte. But the response to that and all the financial issues they've had off the pitch I think is just starting to look shrewder and shrewder as time goes on. Obviously, this quick goal, there is going to be questions over their long-term prospects financially and whatnot. But that being said, in the appointment of Simone Inzaghi, I think that is looking better and better by the day. And we'll maybe look at some other clubs who haven't quite followed suit in terms of that really good approach to management. But you've got a manager who essentially has come in, used... Antonio Conte's formation and has had to embed his ideas as a much more attack-minded manager. Naturally, it's just taken a bit of time and there's been other issues surrounding their squad. One of those discussed a few episodes ago as well was Lautaro Martinez's scoring form. He'd gone about two months without a goal in all competitions. He's now got five league goals in his past four games. And one of the most exciting things about this Inter Milan team is that they do have goals everywhere. There's seven players with four or more goals and assists in the squad. And in terms of the system, we're also really starting to see similarities between Simone Inzaghi's really successful Lazio team at the best and 
his Inter Milan team at the best in the sense in that midfield three, where you've got that city midfielder in Brozovic, who I think is a huge upgrade on an aging Lucas. And then either side of him, you've got Nico Barella, who's been one of the standout players in Serie A for seasons and generally been excellent all season. But then even more interestingly, it's been the emergence of Hakan Chalonoglu, who finally started living up to the reputation he'd set high up by Leverkusen um, a few seasons ago and had never really looked to live up to that in their number 10 shirt for AC Milan until last season. And even then, there were still struggles for consistency. But I think this is the best we've ever seen Chalonoglu in Italy. And that's also been key to Inter Milan's turnaround. But yeah, the form's been absolutely fantastic. And I, I think also one of the things that's really starting to show is that they've really got a lot more composure in tougher situations now. And they seem to be very comfortable against all sorts of teams. They seem to be um, in their victory against Cagliari. Cagliari had less than 25% possession, I believe, and they're very comfortable in terms of breaking them down. And then against teams who have had more possession than them in games this season, um, just the one that I was thinking of was the Napoli one when they won 3-2, which is right back in November when Martinez started this recent goal-scoring form. Napoli dominated the possession in that game and Inter Milan were really able to implement a successful counter-attacking game where they had twice as many shots as the Neapolitan side. But I think, you know, embedding Inzaghi's ideas and I think the payoffs in terms of really smart recruitment with an already established squad, albeit losing a few key names, has been key. And that's why Inter Milan are top of the league. In Atalanta's case, I think it's, you know, with Gasparini, what he's done and what he's done so many times over the season is successfully fine-tune problems in his squad. And one thing that we discussed earlier um, was the issue for balance on the, with the wing-backs, which is so fundamental to the way they play. Previously, we're used to seeing the likes of Hans Hattaboa and Robin Gersons for seasons bombed down either side uh, for the wing-backs. But at the moment, it's Davide Zappacosta on the right, who's generally had quite a stellar season, especially going by his sort of mixed career up to date. But then on the other side, we're seeing the introduction of Giuseppe Pizzella, a player who's on loan from Palmer, who's I was always really intrigued by him last season. He seemed to perform quite well in a disjointed Palmer side, but he's really starting to stand out now as well. And it's quite telling, I think, in the last two games he started, he's picked up an assist, whereas Mailer hasn't recorded a goal or assist in the season, despite the qualities that we know that Mailer possesses. Um, I, I guess the final thing I would say in terms of the fine-tuning with Atalanta as well is that the forward line just seems to be clicking a lot better. And maybe it's because of the better balance throughout the whole team. Seeing the introduction of Alexei Mirin, Miranchuk, he's been at the club about 18 months now, I think. And, you know, he's never really been able to live up to the potential as one of the star players when he was in the Russian Premier League. But he scored um, a crucial goal in the recent victory over Hellas Verona. And I think it's all boding really well for Atalanta at the moment. And out of nowhere, really, they're three points to drift from the top. You still have Napoli and AC Milan in there, but Napoli, since the injury of Victor Simeon, have really struggled to pick up. And AC Milan just maybe showing signs of what they did this time last season, where they've just maybe not been able to live up with the super fast pace start they made and maybe the... Uh, the fatigue taken from the Champions League on quite a small squad is taking its toll. But what it's ultimately made for going into this halfway stage is a really open four-horse title race. And I think that's, you know, what, um, yeah, it's a great, great foundations for the second half of the season.
Another team who have been fulfilling their potential of late are Vincenzo Italiano's Fiorentina. Aside from a derby defeat to Tuscany rivals Empoli, La Viola have firmly found a groove unbeknownst to them in recent seasons, averaging three goals per game in their past five. Considering their star player, Dusan Vlahovic has been personally linked away from Florence. What's been key to Italiano developing such an exciting attacking team, Michael? I mean, it's like the elephant in the room, isn't it, when you do have a player like Vlahovic breaking through at Fiorentina. And I think it's best to start with that because without it, ultimately, we don't know just how free scoring this Fiorentina team would be this season. But I mean, like you said, you know, they've been averaging three goals across the past five games. And I'll come on to that in a little bit, which maybe brings a bit of the wider context into it. But I think what's important to note when you're looking at Vlahovic and you're thinking, OK, this is a Fiorentina team that are scoring lows, but they also have one of the um, the strikers who scored the second most goals in the calendar year, that, OK, naturally they're going to be scoring, you know, for fun. But you look into last season and, you know, it's, it's about a it's about one full year now since Vlahovic really started to break through at Fiorentina with Cesare Prandelli. And him and his successor, the reappointment of Giuseppe Iacchini, last season, who took over on a caretaker basis following Prandelli's resignation. Vlahovic was still scoring for fun from December up until the end of last season, hence why he is, you know, the second highest scorer in Europe this calendar year. Yet, despite that, Fiorentina as a team were really struggling to produce attacking-wise. And I think that's where all the credit, and we move on to Vincenzo Italiano and the really good work he's done this season. And what I've been really impressed about by Laviola is that Generally, when I've gone into a game watching them, I've felt that they can go toe-to-toe with any team, and that maybe explains their position of fifth in the league. But in some of their early games this season, um, they struggled against some of the bigger teams, even though like generally their performances were quite good. But, I mean, if you look at the defeats to Roma, into Milan um, and Juventus, they had red cards in all the games, and as well as red cards and defeats to the likes against Venezia as well. And discipline, I think one of the things that Italiano has kind of had to balance this season has been trying to, okay, he's given license to to this team that's full of attacking, um, exciting attacking players like Riccardo Sapinara, who he took over from Spezia, um, Bonaventura, another really established player from Serie A. And he's he's really moulded this exciting attacking team but they just seem to have measured it a bit more and seems to just have calmed them down a bit in the last few games. I think that now what we've seen, and, and I think the turnaround for that might have been when they did finally get one over a big team recently, when they defeated AC Milan 4-3, and that's what started this fantastic run. And, okay, there's going to be concerns going forwards in terms of how far the team can go, depending on Vlahovic's situation. There does seem to be a realistic chance he will leave. It doesn't seem to be money that's keeping him there, that he's been offered a salary five times of what he was on or what he's currently on and he's refusing. He certainly seems to have ambitions to play at the highest level, hence rejecting a move to Arsenal during the summer as well. But had to throw that one in there. But um, I, I think what's really encouraging about Fiorentina, especially with the appointment of Italiano, is that as well as him getting things right tactically, which 
you know, he really has done so and he's made them, you know, they're also starting to pick up more clean sheets now. He seems to have quite a big input on the recruitment and he's really moulding a team um, to, you know, to his vision, really. And I think the signings of Nicola Gonzalez was a real statement signing from Stuttgart last summer. And one of the players that is re reported to be on the verge of joining is one you'll know very well, Ali, and Jonathan Akone from Lille. And, you know, that for a team who have barely touched or played in Europe for the last few years, uh, that would be such a statement signing. And I think, once again, it just shows the direction that Fiorentina are really going, that they're really starting to look outside the Serie A now. But, yeah, uh, I would certainly recommend anybody to watch Fiorentina because they're a truly exciting attacking team. So what you're saying is, Michael, perhaps we should have Fiorentina playing Strasbourg in an exhibition match and we'll see plenty of goals, lots of action. Just below Fiorentina in the league are Jose Mourinho's Roma, who picked up a much-needed victory over Spezia after consecutive league defeats. Given Paolo Fonseca's struggles at the helm prior to Mourinho's appointment, rediscovering Roma's winning touch was never going to be easy. Nevertheless, short-term fixes will mean very little for all the special ones doubters. As we approach the midway point of the season, are there any signs of Mourinho building a long-term project in the Italian capital, Michael? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd just say on the Fiorentina thing, I'd love it to be a two-legged encounter so we can matrix out to them both. I think that'd be one of the like most ideal European trips, wouldn't it? Glorious. <laughs> but... Yeah, coming on to Roma, which is a bit more gloomy at the moment, not the city, of course. But I would say in terms of long-term prospects, they are there, but ultimately, I think, for the wrong reasons at the moment. And I think that's because Roma made the decision to appoint a manager who I think is, you know, and I think it's quite a common perception, is past his best. And they've handed him a €7 million Euro contract a season now. Firstly, I wouldn't say, I would I would just stress that Mourinho's reign has been far from disastrous. They're sixth in the league. They're not miles away from the top four. And he has had a lot of setbacks this season in terms of injuries to key personnel and uh, COVID outbreaks and also disciplinary issues, which, you know, some of which have been out of his control. Nevertheless, I think in terms of a playing style, I think it is everything that you imagine from a modern Mourinho team in terms of that they he's almost stuck in this identity crisis where he doesn't know whether he wants to take create an attacking team whether he even has the tools to do that in his managerial repertoire or whether he wants them to become a more defensive unit and I think what it's created during the season is a bit of a confusing look to their starting lineups and they did beat Spezia which was such a much needed result because I think this could have this is probably not the most positive <laughs> of, you know, bits that I'll have on Mourinho, but it could have been a lot worse. But nevertheless, I think his formation is something that you'd never traditionally associate with his old teams, where you'd know what player was sort of playing each role and there'd be a, a profile of player fit for each position. Whereas now you're looking, he's playing with a 3-5-2, which is, of course, something he never did previously. Okay, maybe it's the signs of a manager trying to evolve, but like a midfield three of Brian Cristante, Jordan Vettu and Emrick Mkhitaryan, but playing as a midfield three just doesn't seem to work. And I think that there's creativity issues in the squad. They come up against Atalanta at the weekend, which is also going to be really difficult. And I think 
Mourinho was brought in to try and get Roma into the top four. And if you look at the top four, unless there's going to be a huge drop-off from AC Milan, which is not impossible, even then you would still put two or three teams as favourites over Roma to leapfrog them into those Champions League positions. And I, I'm really unconvinced by the project at the moment, but I think the one thing that Roma do have in their favour is that their recruitment generally has been quite good and there are some really good players there. And Mourinho has complained about the players. Of course, there's this whole emotional side to his management as well, which has come under huge scrutiny this season. He compared Cristante not having the same sort of leadership qualities as Bonucci after their victory over Spezia earlier in the week, which, again, is just quite perturbing, I guess you'd say, in terms of, you know, why he'd be deciding to do that. But I think the recruitment generally has been okay. I'm not quite convinced with Rui Patricio. I've told you that a lot of the weekend from him. Yeah, uh, from my past experience, you know, in this last season at Wolves, but signings like Vina, the wing back, has been really good for them this season. Brazilian wing back and Tammy Abraham. Okay, this is a striker's brought in with not the best, uh, with a really good non penalty XG, one of the best in Europe last season, but he's really still struggling to find that finishing touch. And you do feel like if he can add goals to his game, there are causes for optimism for him. And they did finish top of the Europa League conference. The position. On paper, doesn't look that bad. But again, I think you look at the playing style, look at the entertainment they're bringing, and it's really lacking. So if that's something you can address, you know, we yet to see. But I'm not terribly optimistic about it halfway through the season. Excellent, as always, Michael. And I think that represents a good point at which to conclude our analysis of Italian football. We're going to take a quick break now before coming back to discuss German football. We'll be right back. To Germany and the top flight match day 14. So Borussia Dortmund hosts league leaders Bayern Munich in the latest edition of the Zogananta Klassica, adding further spice to one of the most anticipated events in, German, in the German football calendar. Was the fact that at kickoff, just a single point separated the two sides at the top of the Bundesliga table. The following 90 minutes or so of Saturday night's action at the Signal Iduna Park served up drama and attacking quality in equal measure, with Bayern ultimately edging out their hosts with a 3-2 victory. Looking at the game holistically, what were some of the key takeaways from this pulsating encounter between the two of Bundesliga's finest sides, Ali? Yeah, Barlow, I think the first point to note is that this was a thoroughly enjoyable game of football to watch. And in the same way that you would perhaps describe a book as unputdownable, this game, and in particular its first half, was unswitch-offable. Barlow, I know that's not a word, well, I'm fairly certain that's not a word, but honestly... Your eyes were just about glued to the telly watching it. It was marvellous. The crowd as well, there were only 15,000 fans in the stadium for this one, but they made quite some noise, Barlow. The atmosphere was was electric, even through the television. You could really feel that atmosphere. It was brilliant. In terms of key takeaways, I think Andy Brassel got it pretty much spot on in his weekly column in The Guardian when he said that the game really provided us with reminders of Dortmund's potentials, or Dortmund's potential, rather, and Dortmund's limits. Um, I feel like I 
I reference Andy Brassel quite regularly, but he's he's a journalist who I respect a lot, and he always seems to be really quite on the money with his observations, with his comments when it comes to the Bundesliga. And I think when he says we saw Dortmund's potential and we saw Dortmund's limits, we say that because on the one hand, there were some moments of real class from the likes of Jude Bellingham, Erling Haaland, Julian Brandt. But on the other hand, there were several defensive mishaps, most of which were naturally punished by their Bavarian visitors. And there probably is quite a solid argument to be made that all of Bayern's goals came from defensive mistakes on Dortmund's part. Elsewhere, now we've looked briefly there at Dortmund, but I do just want to shine the spotlight on Bayern as well. And I think in this one, Barlow, it was really interesting to see Bayern's hybrid back three slash back four in operation. Now, although Bayern lined up with a nominal four-man defence, what we tended to see over the course of the 90 minutes was Alfonso Davis pushing up on the left side and Luque Hernandez, Dio Mecano and Benjamin Pavard essentially playing as three centre-backs. So Pavard would really tuck in. and It's not too surprising to see that happening. Alfonso Davis is definitely the more attack-minded of the two nominal fullbacks if we can even call them that between him and Pavard so it was it wasn't too surprising it isn't too surprising whenever we see Pavard tucking in slightly to form a back three I'm mentioning this because when you look at Twitter when you look at what Bayern fans are saying when you look on various websites run by Bayern fans what you gather is that the jury is still very much out amongst Bayern fans on whether or not they're really in favour of that hybrid back three slash hybrid back four. Of course, Julian Nagelsmann often deployed a back three when he was in charge at RB Leipzig. And yeah, the feeling is very much that Bayern are in the middle of a season-long shift towards a contemporary back three, Peter Weiss spoke about that in his weekly tactics talk column on the Bullying News website. We've mentioned Peter Weiss a couple of times on the podcast and his weekly tactics talk columns are, yeah, they're a joy to read. And he spoke about how what we're quite clearly seeing with this hybrid back four slash back three is the manifestation, if you like, of Ewing Nagelsmann's desire to eventually play with this back three. Now, the reason that I wanted to really spotlight this defensive setup from Bayern Munich is because there's 100% an argument to be made that that defensive setup was at least partially responsible for the confusion which allowed Julian Brandt to nip in and score the opener. Now, it was a lovely play from Bellingham. It was a lovely play as well from Julian Brandt. So I'm not trying to take too much away from those moments of class from each of those players but I think you could absolutely make an argument that if the defence was perhaps more settled if the defence weren't in the middle of that sort of transition if you like ultimately to a back three you could make the argument that confusion doesn't reign in the way that it did and the chance doesn't present itself in the way that it did for 
Julian Brandt, who, who absolutely benefited from at least a degree of confusion in that back line as to who was supposed to be covering and who was supposed to be where. Now, ultimately, that didn't really matter as Bayern did go on to win this one 3-2, but you do wonder, Barlow, how they might fare against elite quality opposition in the latter stages of the Champions League. That said, by the time we get to the latter stages of the Champions League, this defensive system will have had more time to develop, will have had time to improve. And so what we're saying now might be totally hypothetical, but I think it is absolutely something to bear in mind, Barlow. Finally, on a more positive note for Bayern, we do have to mention that they have now won nine of their last 10 encounters with Dortmund in the Bundesliga. A Bayern win in their Klassiker is almost as inevitable as a Robert Lewandowski goal against his former employers. In all competitions, Lewandowski has scored 26 goals in 25 games against Dortmund. No other team has conceded more goals at the feet or the head or the other body part of Robert Lewandowski than Borussia Dortmund. They must just dread facing him, as most teams naturally would, but Dortmund in particular, to have conceded 26 goals to Lewandowski over 25 games, it's it's remarkable. Just to circle back to that fact that Dortmund have only won one of their last 10 Bundesliga games against Bayern Munich, you would imagine, Barlow, that Marco Rose's record against the Bavarians would have played at least a partial role in a decision to appoint him on a three-year contract. Now, at the time that appointment was announced, Rosa had won two out of the three games against Bayern as a coach. We'd seen some really impressive performances from Gladsback, and we were starting to think, does Marco Rosa have Bayern Munich's number? Well, based on the evidence since that appointment was made, or since that announcement was made rather back in February with Rosa making the switch to Dortmund over the summer, since that announcement was made, Back in February, <laughs> Marco Rosa has lost three and three with his teams conceding 12 times over those three games. Now, admittedly, both of those stats come from a really quite small sample size, but I do think it's worth noting. Dortmund will next face Bayern in the league in April, but you do wonder, Barlow, if perhaps the league may already have been won by then. Let's just wait and see how the title race pans out. We're going to take a quick break now before turning our attention to Spain. Rudy Barlow is going to give us the lowdown on all the latest developments in La Liga. We'll be right back. On Sunday night, all eyes were on the Santiago Bernabeu for the Madrileño derby as Atleti travelled to their neighbours. It was the reigning champions from last year against the runners-up and with Real Madrid beginning to build a significant lead, there was a feeling that we should really have had a defiant stand of sorts from Atleti. And yet, the game felt almost routine in a match that may both symbolise and sentence this title race, Barlow. Yeah, it is taking on a bit of a feeling of routine nature for Real Madrid. I mean, they've opened up 
Um, that significant gap, as you said, 13 points to Atleti and eight to Sevilla. Both of them do have a game in hand on Real Madrid. But at the same time, that's a fairly significant lead. And credit to Ancelotti, where it's due, because this was dubbed as one of the most open title races in years and one of the sort of weakest Real Madrid's in years. And as we sort of approach Christmas, it's almost as good as wrapped up as it can be. I mean, they are, they are, it's not just even the feeling that they are far ahead in the table. I think it's the feeling that they can continue at this rate and even improve. So fair play to Ancelotti. I'll give him his credit where he's due there. As you say, sort of a defiant last stand, you expected Atleti to go really to the wire with this. You expected them to give absolutely everything. And it was almost a bizarre game in the sense that Atleti did attack, but there was sort of never really a feeling of jeopardy in the game. It was, it was almost played as if they, the players knew the result of the match before it had happened because Atleti attacked, they, they did throw people forward. And Real Madrid... They didn't dominate the entire game as perhaps um, they would have liked, although I'm sure that they enjoyed the extra space on the counter-attack, which they exploited for both Asensio's goal and Benzema's. But yeah, it was it was a very weird game in which Real Madrid felt so superior to Atleti, despite not necessarily showing that they were superior. Kroos and Modric, I mean, we've talked about them a million times, and so has every other football pa- podcast that you've listened to in the last sort of 10 years, but you you have to comment again on just how smooth and experienced their midfield is. The two of them were just in sort of perpetual motion, not in the sense of getting up and down the park, but just sort of it, it was so, it was like watching a wheel spin on a car in one of those adverts. And Modric, to be fair to him, did get at least two standing ovations, I think I saw, um, which kind of shows you just how good he was. And then, of course, Vinicius and Benzema, as we've mentioned, making the difference. On the other hand, Atleti. There are issues with the construction of the squads, and we've mentioned those. And there have been mitigating factors in terms of injuries. Shao Felix has been out. Luis Suarez. I mean, you could ask questions about how much you can rely on him anyway, just given his age and injury history. But we're almost halfway through the season now, and... I don't have a clear idea of exactly how it is that they plan games. I don't have, it doesn't seem as if Atleti and Simeone have a picture of each match in their head as to how this is going to go, how they're going to exploit the other team and how they're going to defend. And that's pretty damning. And it's, it kind of sounds harsh, but it's, I think it's spoken from a place of frustration on my part, at least. And I'm not even an Atleti fan, so I can't imagine how Los Colchoneros feel, but, this was a real chance to take a next step for them as a club, in my mind. I think if Atleti had managed to retain the title this year, and if Atleti had really gone head-to-head with Real Madrid, had proved that they could go toe-to-toe with them in an attacking sense as well, not just winning the title, then that would have maybe elevated them into a different realm. We're supposed to, right now, Atleti are always in and around it for the title race. They're always a challenger. But if they had managed to sort of win this title again now I think they could have counted themselves and we don't know when and if Barcelona will come back as they were but they could have counted themselves amongst Real Madrid in terms of the Spanish elite whereas now 
there is still that sense that Atleti are plucky challengers, that they're underdogs, even though they have a very good squad and Real Madrid are the top dogs. And it's, it's an achievement to knock them off top spot. Whereas if they had managed to retain the title, I think you could have seen a real sort of tectonic shift in the plates of Spanish football. So, yeah, I have to say it was disappointing from Atleti just how simple this was for Real Madrid. And they, they had the chance to really lay down the gauntlet to, to Real Madrid this season. And we don't know. I mean, it's still, we're not even halfway through the season yet. And it could all go drastically wrong. But as it stands, yeah, Atleti are a long way behind Real Madrid. On the other hand, the European race below Real Madrid is far more absorbing. Real Sociedad went south to Seville in order to take on Real Betis in a game which saw fifth place up against third. This felt like almost a battle to see who would emerge as the top contender to vie with Barcelona for the final Champions League spot this season. Did we get an answer, Barlow? Yeah, we got a pretty emphatic answer in terms of the scoreline, at least. It was 4-0 to Real Betis, and they were playing some liquid football uh, by the end of that match. Some of the goals were fantastic. It almost kind of felt like a throwback to maybe like 2004, 2005 Brazil, when they had sort of four of those kind of attackers just mm-hmm. descending on the defence, and the fullbacks were always in behind Alex Moreno got two of the goals and he was their, their left back on this occasion. But it was a much closer game than the scoreline sort of really shows and, and much closer than the Madrid derby, I should say. The first half, Real Sociedad dominated. They had way more chances. They had, I think, Porto had several chances on his own to sort of seal the game. And to all intents and purposes, were probably the better team, something that Phil Ball who, who's a journalist I respect a lot and has written some some great books on Spanish football, he pointed that out and said, look, this Betis team, maybe they're not all that. But I think that might be the difference between the two sides is that Real Sociedad, as good a team as they are, and I, I sort of very much subscribe to Emmanuel Aguacil and exactly what they're doing. As good a team as they are, it always feels like it. The, the verb I'm looking for is costarse in Spanish. So that's kind of, it takes, it's a lot of effort for them to win games and score goals. Nothing is ever just simple. It's never 2 3 4 nil back home and, and you don't even think about it. It's always a, a task. Whereas Real Betis, to be fair to them, they just make less mistakes in both boxes, which for a side that has Mark Bartra, with all due respect, in defence, Alex Moreno, former winger, converted Hector Bellerin, I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with some of his mistakes in recent years. For a team with that kind of defence, for them to be making so few mistakes is a testament to their achievement. When it comes to adversity, they are able to pick themselves up. They are able to come back into games and get over the line. And that's maybe the difference between La Real and Real Betis. And that might be the thing that, sways or or shifts Real Betis into a position to challenge for that fourth place against Barcelona in my mind I think Sevilla Real Madrid and Atleti are not guaranteed but certainly in pole position for those top three spots and yeah another illustration of that is Wanmi who was signed from Real Sociedad and he's been the big difference for me in 
like the difference between him at Real Sociedad and him at Real Betis is massive. He's outperforming his XG by five at the minute. He scored 10 La Liga goals and he's really been kind of a revelation this season. And it's incredible just how confident he looks, how natural he looks as a goal scorer. And I think we always perhaps think of players as being goal scorers or not goal scorers. And maybe we need to sort of shift that narrative on our minds a little bit because Juan Mi, although he's already always had a relationship with goals, he's never been an out-and-out goal scorer. He's never been an out-and-out striker. And he isn't in this Betty side, but he's scoring at an incredible rate. I'm sure he'll come back to the mean a little bit. But the, uh, the stat that was doing the rounds, I think, for Manuel Pellegrini, the Betis manager, after this match was that of, I think there's four teams in La Liga where he has the highest win percentage in their history, which is pretty phenomenal. Villarreal, Malaga, Real Madrid, and Real Betis. And apart from Real Madrid, there's a good argument to say that he's been or overseen the best period in three of those four teams' history maybe with the exception of Real Betis winning the league, but certainly one of them in their modern history. And yeah, phenomenal what they're doing. I think the development and the cohesion in this team is almost unprecedented in terms of a team going from, without much investment, from a very sort of ropey team to a very solid team. One team that would have had aspirations for the European places at the start of the season are Athletic Club. Real's biggest rivals find themselves mired in mid-table. However, with an almost embarrassing problem at this point, Barlow, don't they? Yeah, they're a little bit um, impotent, to put it uh, politely at the minute. They are eight games without a win. Uh, Marcelino's worst run in La Liga. They've scored about two goals from their last 70 to 80 shots. They are 13 goals down on their XG, which is astounding numbers I think they're worse than the top five leagues for that and only Hatafe have scored less I, I've never seen a team quite as goal averse as this athletic side I have to say and again you expect this to regress to the mean a little bit but it's kind of a unique situation in that we know athletic because of their basketball only policy they can't sign a striker they can't just bring in goals whereas another side in January would go out and invest in that sort of area of the team and so it, it's quite a bizarre problem to have for Marcelino and, and a unique one in football because it's not just finances. It's, it's, you can't just find a pick up a random striker who might just get confident, get a run of form. And so it'll be interesting to see if Marcelino changes it because the figures show that they are creating the chances. It's more of a, a mental thing that none of their strikers or none of their forwards are able to score. And Marcelino... Yeah, on the face of it, he seems to be doing his job, but he can only do what he can't physically put the ball in the net himself. So it will be interesting to see how they make up for this. Partly it does show how good their defence has been, the fact that they're still mid-table and not in a relegation battle, given their statistics. But it also must be coming into sort of a, a mental block now for the players. And how he digs them out of that, how he works the team through this period will be interesting to see because I think he's one of the best managers in La Liga but yeah it's it's concerning to say the least and, and it'll be interesting to watch although I do hope there are more goals when we're watching it. 
glorious stuff as always Barlow thank you very much and thank you as well to Michael Jones thank you also to you dear listener our next episode will of course be after Christmas so we'll take the time now to say have a lovely Christmas we hope you make lots of happy memories over the festive period until the next time stay safe and stay well thank you and goodbye